BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Monday, July 24th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show or on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is brought to you by SendPro from Pitney Bowes. SendPro has three times the features of Stamps.com at one-third the price. Visit pb.com slash minds to learn more and to try it for free for 90 days. After that, you'll get SendPro for only five bucks a month. That's a third of the cost of Stamps.com. That special $5 rate is good for the lifetime of your SendPro subscription, but only when you sign up at pb.com slash m-i-n-d-s. So we have a looming problem. There is going to be a change in our climate. It's already happening, as we know. It's going to cause even more famines like the one that is threatening uh, Africa at the moment. And it's going to leave a lot of people without the food that they're used to eating, even those who uh, have a plenty of food at the moment. So we need to figure out how we're going to solve this problem. Now, one of my friends is Brian Fisher. He's the lead entomologist at the California Academy of Science, and he's well known for his very complex and interesting work on the social lives of ants uh, or ant colonies in general. We've had him on the show in the past in episode 70. Uh, it's called The Real Ant-Man. And for a while, he sort of started to feel as if he needed to do more than just study insects. He actually wanted to help save the world, and fix a fundamental problem. So with fair warning, we are going to be talking on this show about eating bugs. Why fair warning? That's <laughs> a, it's only culturally weird here in the, in the Western world. It's actually fairly common to eat bugs in many other cultures. Yeah, and I guess there are certain kinds of bugs that we eat here even, you know, well, a lot of them we don't even know we're eating them. Uh, <laughs> and uh, But yeah, I think it still weirds people out. I think it weirds you out. It definitely weirds me out. <laughs> so that so. was the first time you had insects? Um, that was the first time. Uh, oh, yeah. Wait. So this is a spoiler alert. I will be eating insects on this show, or at least I might. I will be asked to eat an insect on this show. And I'm telling you, it does not look like cricket flour, which I've had in my pancakes and on my oatmeal in the past, uh, which just looks like regular flour. This was a real dead cricket. There was no chance that it was anything else. I actually like crickets. I think they're tasty. <laughs> they're crunchy. All right. Well, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with the real Ant-Man, Brian Fisher. Support for today's show comes from Forever Labs. Founded by Steve Klausnitzer and his expert team of doctors and biomedical research scientists, Forever Labs aims to help everyone live better for longer. Forever Labs help you store your young, viable stem cells today so that you can access them for future use in rejuvenation therapies, fighting age-related disease, or other treatments that might become available in the future. Like the car you drive, your stem cells accumulate wear and tear over time, and the number and therapeutic quality of our stem cells seems to diminish with age. So the idea is that if younger stem cells are better, having them on hand for the future might help us live a healthier life once there are therapies that have been discovered that put them to use. 
Not to mention, stem cell usage is advancing rapidly every year, and stem cell treatments in animals suggest they might have the potential to increase lifespan in other species. So why not ours? It's entirely possible. So don't wait, get started today. Just go to in.foreverlabs.com slash store one and enter the referral code MINDS. That's in.foreverlabs.com slash store one, referral code MINDS. This episode is brought to you by SendPro from Pitney Bowes. SendPro has three times the features of stamps.com at one third the price. You can print stamps from your computer, which saves you time and money, of course. No special equipment is necessary and no more waiting in line at the post office. Pretty much my least favorite thing to do. Compare shipping rates and delivery times between the USPS and other major carriers to ensure you always get the best deal when you ship packages. And you can print paid shipping labels for USPS, UPS, and more. You can also track your shipments from the same easy-to-use interface. And Pitney Bowes has negotiated special rates for SendPro users, so savings start at just three cents per stamp. Businesses can even mail now and pay later with flexible payment options. Visit pb.com minds to learn more, and when you sign up, you'll get SendPro free for 90 days. You'll get a free 10-pound scale, and when your free trial is over, you'll get SendPro for only $5 a month. That special rate is good for the lifetime of your SendPro subscription. It does not expire. That's 5 bucks a month for SendPro versus $15.99 a month for Stamps.com. That's three times the features at one-third the price. But you can only get this deal for a limited time by going to pb.com slash minds. That's pb.com slash M-I-N-D-S. Take advantage of this incredible offer. Brian Fisher, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you back on the show. Our listeners might remember you from episode 70 when you were just about to take your family to Mozambique. Yes, what an experience. So what happened? Well, it's one thing to think about going to Mozambique and another thing going there. Here in the Bay Area, every day is like filled, you know, there's all this action. There's the internet, there's food, there's electricity, and then you get on a plane and off you go. And we arrived in this small fishing, fishing village in northern Mozambique near Tanzania, and there's silence. There's like no place to go shopping, no, no water, just on this beautiful ocean beach. And it was actually in one sense very beautiful, but on the other hand, quite an adjustment. It took us about a month or even more to figure out how to get water even and how to even eat. So tell us why you went and a little bit about, you know, how old your kids were and sort of what was that like? Well, our kids are five, my daughter, Anna, and our son, Pedro, he's 10, when we left to go there. And they were all game. They, they, did, this, they didn't get phased at all. Um, kids are great about traveling. It's the adults. We, we're used to our coffee in the morning, water that doesn't taste like salt water to drink and uh, having something besides beans to eat. Um, all are good things. Um, but it was quite an adjustment. And why, though, is because I work in a neighboring country, Madagascar, just off the coast of Mozambique. In fact, it was attached to Mozambique about 100 million years ago. And I've been working all over what I call the Southwest Indian Ocean, Madagascar, Seychelles, Comores. And to really understand where the animals came from, especially the ants, my specialty, I decided I'd better visit where what was once attached to Madagascar. And the closest place is Mozambique. But we knew nothing really about the ants in the most northern part of Mozambique. Because of civil war, conflict in the country, very few people have even traveled through that area. So we decided the only way to do it is just to move there, spend a year, thanks to Fulbright, and we were lucky that we could just live there and travel. In fact, some of the greatest records discoveries we made were actually in our backyard. That's how unknown this area is, that one of the, the first record of the genus Terratainer, where was it found? In our backyard. So what, so what was your day like? Did the kids go to school? Did you, what, what, what did you, did you spend all day in the family digging up ant colonies? What was well, it like? Well, right. So we were excited about leaving because here in, in my office, day life here, probably 95% of my time is spent going to meetings and bureaucracy, and that leaves 5% for research. So let's just spend a year doing research. Wrong. So going there, it was 95% spending your time figuring out how to live and 5% of your time doing research. Now, we had to get our kids and they went to the local school. You know, they didn't care that the language was <laughs> Makula and uh, Portuguese. 
Um, and we had to find a way to actually get the kids to be watched. And then we could travel around. That meant we had to buy a car, get it registered, and then figure out how to get our visa situation, which is very complicated at that time in Mozambique. Now it's resolved, but we were there during probably the worst time for visas um, in Madagascar. We basically had to flee the country every 30 days. So we could be like a thousand miles from home, have to drive back, pick up the kids, and then flee to the Tanzania border, cross the border for 10 minutes, and come back every month. <laughs> wow. Very inconvenient for a year, but uh, it worked out. So, so tell us a little bit about the research that you were doing. So when you actually did have the time to look at some ant colonies, what did you do? Well, we collected, and uh, I brought a team over for three months from, Mos um, from Madagascar, my field team. And it's so different than Madagascar. Madagascar has only about 10% of the forest left. So their collecting is about going to that patch of forest. While in northern Mozambique, there's forest everywhere. So you can just drive down any road and pull over. There's forest. So all we did was drive down the existing roads. It was rainy season, so very difficult. But we just drove none of this mapping. Where is there forest? No, we could just drive anywhere. And that's why even just near our home, we can make great collections. But Mozambique has something else that's interesting. It has these mountains called Inselbergs that shoot out from this kind of very flat lowlands. And those mountaintops have a different type of habitat on it. They have, it has rainforest. And that rainforest could be uh, or was connected to rainforest all the way to the Congo Basin. But over the drying phases over the last 30 million years, they've separated. So we wanted to see where do those ants come from? Are they just lowland ants now from the dry forest moving upwards? Or do they represent relics from this 30 mil million year old connection to the rainforest of the Congo Basin? And nobody's looked at the ants. So we went and climbed up these mountains, and our results are most exciting for that. We found exciting, amazing things that we found up in these rainforest mountaintops on these isolated mountains. So for someone who thinks all ants look the same, <laughs> what did you find and how do you distinguish, you know, an ant that's, you know, is it through DNA that you look at, you know, what, where you think they came from, or is it through features of their physicality? How do you do this work? That's a great question because you're right. Most For most people, even though ants are super diverse, we're talking like 30,000 species, even though they're super abundant, you know, if you put them all together in a big pile, they weigh about as much as all humans on Earth. So abundant, diverse, but for most of us, they're invisible, except maybe when they enter into our kitchen uninvited. But that's another question. But how do I tell? Well, a lot of times you can tell by just by knowing the genus. Now, we can identify the genus in the field. So, for example, if that genus is known only to live in the Congo Basin and we find it on the top of this rainforest mountain, we know probably it's a connection to the rainforest and not simply the lowland, which is dry forest. So there's like dry woodland all across Mozambique, but up in the mountains we have rainforest. So we found different genera, in total of 10, that were not recorded before in Mozambique and not known from the lowlands. So we could actually say, yes, they're found up here in the highlands. Therefore, that's a potential um, connection, historical connection to when that forest went all the way to the Congo Basin. So what, what is the implication of these findings that you, that you came back with? Well, one thing is if we wanted to actually prioritize small places that are most important to preserve, it would be the rainforest in Mozambique. And actually we... All the mountains we surveyed, there's one, only one left that has rainforest that starts at about 400 meters and goes all the way up to about, about um, almost 2,000. Only one. And that forest, that mountain, is not protected. So we've been championing this idea that that should be the number one priority. We did not find much differences in the lowlands. So almost anywhere was the same in the lowlands, and there's a lot of it left. You know, I'm glad there's some parks already in the lowlands, but there's no parks for this rainforest. And that's to me. And it's had the twice the diversity of, of, of species, unique species that have this unique historic, historical perspective, this story of this connection possibly to the Congo, completely unpreserved. We're lucky that the Kew Botanical Garden is also very interested in preserving that because they found interesting plant species up there. But um, as a national level, it's still um, not highlighted enough. And it's so small. It's just one mountain. But meanwhile, the locals are still living there, moving up the mountain, cutting down the forest to grow rice and beans and corn. 
So with time, very shortly, uh, it could be gone. So let's say you found, um, you know, you found some some species that are different that you know look different. You know, to me, always the interesting thing about ants is their social life. Did you or were you able to look at how these colonies behave differently at different parts of the country? Or was that is that too big a task for the time that you had? Well, we did devote about a month to it. We had a, uh, another visitor from Paris, Christian Peters, who is a behavioral specialist who works at how ants evolved to reproduce. And he came and we looked at ants along the coast. We looked at one ant that had this weird behavior. Um, it's so strange, this ant. It's a, it's, we still don't understand it exactly, but let me just give you some specifics. Um, most ants have three pairs of legs, and they can walk anywhere. This ant has this middle pair going up. So if you took this ant and put it on your hand, it can't walk around. Where does it live? It lives inside another live tree, and it burrows, has these big mammals that burrows tiny little tunnels through the tree. And those middle legs kind of hold it up to the top surface of the tunnel. And they're just can spin around, whipping around. And they never leave. It's clear they never leave these tunnels, right? It's like—is it like like a roller coaster car that's it's, like in a spiral roller coaster? Yes, yeah, like so. Okay, it's in these tunnels, whipping around. You can go anywhere because it's got this middle leg that goes up. Okay, what does it eat? But before I tell you what it potentially eats, let me tell you some other facts. It's the only adult ant in the world that produces silk, and it's lining the silk in this tunnel and using the silk to close any holes that may open in its tunnel. Why? Why is it using? Why is it producing silk to do this, you know? Why doesn't it just take something else and plug the holes? But it produces silk. In fact, its entire head is a big silk gland. Hmm. And to make it even more confusing, there's another insect in these tunnels. It's called a um, mealybug or a wax scale. And it lives, and there's thousands. It's just stock full of these little yellow other insects that are tapping into the phloem of the plant. Now, the assumption is that this ant is rearing these other insects to eat what? Are they eating them? We don't think so. We actually think it's eating the wax that's produced by these. So it's living off the wax that it's, a, a, it's like herding. It's so rearing. yeah, so this ant has like domesticated another bug. Right, right. The way we do chickens and cows and so forth. Yeah, and here it is, just living in these plants all along the east coast of Mozambique, like Humpty Dum, nobody's looking at me, hidden away. And here we are, and we just studied that. And we also started studying the ant that we found in our backyard um, because it was interesting that uh, uh, this genus doesn't produce winged queens. Most ants have a winged queen phase where the queen flies away, mates with the male, then takes off her wings and starts a colony. Well, this ant um, reproduces without winged queens. It, it has a queen that mates and then just walks away and starts reproducing. So we study that. Mm. Um, so it's fun to be the early people, right? There's so many things that are unknown about ants um, that we, it was like the 19th century explorers. Everything we looked at potentially could be new. Everything we looked at was completely unstudied. You know, when you go to school and learn science, you think, wow, we know so much. We must know everything. And then you go out in the real world and start observing something. You realize, most cases, we know nothing about that. And to me, that's the most exciting part. So for me, it was like living a year of exploration. Very different than, than like flying in with your team for an expedition for just a few weeks and flying back home. We were living that. So it was part of our lives. You know, we would go into bars and give talks about exploring and ants, and the people would love it. So it was a real frontier community where we could actually be part of that frontierism and be the explorers a part of that frontier community. And it was really uh, a great experience. And so, you know, you went there for a year because you couldn't get permissions and, you know, to just come in with your lab for a month and do what you needed to do. Do you find that having spent a year there, having been able to, you know, sort of ha as you de de um, describe, interact with the locals, do you think they now would be more open to bringing other scientists in? Well, it, what was hard about organizing Mozambique is that one, we didn't really understand from a practical logistic point of view how to do it. So, you know, to do this kind of trip, we one, we need permits. How do you get the permits from outside? There was no response or help from the country. And two, when you get there, how do you organize logistics? We're going to start in northern Mozambique. We need vehicles, we need food, we need equipment. We need to understand where we have to go to collect or how, how, how can we do this? And it was just impossible to organize outside the country. 
Um, and it was never, uh, I was never willing to risk go there for two months and just hope for the best. So it, you know, we spent actually three weeks getting the permits by going to the offices and finding out how to do it. And we bought a car, you know, and figured out how to get it registered and get a driver's license and do all that kind of stuff. And then we were set. We were, it's a huge investment. Um, so we made the best of it and lived there. And uh, yeah, we could have done the same work if we had all that organized for us. But um, I actually enjoyed um, really being part of the community. So that was 2016. Right. So what happened when you came home? What was the reentry like, especially for your kids? Um, well, the kids, once again, um, immediately missed the great life we had. Um, uh, they're flexible. They're already quickly adapted. But it was amazing. All the things we feared, in a sense, um, except maybe illness or disease, uh, weren't true. Like, ah, oh, security for their children. Actually, Africa is a child's paradise. There are, they're, they're, they have complete control. They're more free there than they are in the United States. You know, they can, everything's for the kids. Everybody's so polite to kids. Everybody will do anything to help your kids. Um, it's kids rule there. You, you can stay out late. You can be free to walk around to the ocean. You can swim in anybody's house. You know, if we had a bus to pick up our kids to go to school, if they didn't come home, it was like, no panic. They probably just went to somebody's house. We'll hear later about that, you know, so no worries. But it took us a while to adjust to it, you know. Now, I was always shocked about seeing a four-year-old sitting behind a pickup truck while their dad's up front bouncing the kid around um, down the highway. Um, but, you know, it was a good for us, I think, to see such uh, liberty for the kids. So when you came back, uh, did you continue to do on that work or did you switch to, to back to some of your work in Madagascar? Well, I switched to working back in Madagascar, but we're still processing the ants. In fact, all these drawers of ants you see around this collection in, in my office here are actually ants from Mozambique. They're, that's the product of our work in Mozambique. Yeah. But, so I'm seeing just to describe to our listeners, there's all these piles of boxes with all these ants with little pins in them and they all look the same to me. <laughs> Each one's <laughs> special. Each one, so we're going to database them and image them. And, um, no, I know, but them. that's what's amazing. Like, I'm sure that you can see differences in them that I'm blind to. But, you know, is that, do, do you look through a microscope to see them? I mean, you know, some of them look so similar that I imagine, like, how do you know that well, it wasn't just mislabeled and it's part of that one? <laughs> to, to really appreciate ants, though, it's true. You have to see images of them or, or see a mic through a microscope. Then they're absolutely beautiful. Well, most of them are. There's a few ugly ones, but most are beautiful. Um, but while I was in Mozambique, I also thought more about my role as an entomologist. Like, I was living there and I was working on something for them locally, something so bizarre, right? Um, just collecting ants to see what was there. And this is, you know, hard for them to realize that could be important at all when finding food is like the most important thing or water. Um and it was a dry year that year, so getting fresh water was really hard. And the same thing in Madagascar, in a sense, and I've always struggled with this. I love the organisms and animals, and I go to Madagascar, and I fall in love with these forests, and I'm watch also watching these forests disappear. And I'm saying all the time, well, well, biological exploration, discovering who we share this planet with is important. But at the same time, I see the forest still disappearing. In fact, I've worked in Madagascar for 20 years and the forest is still disappearing. So what have I done to help save the forest? I say it's important to discover what's in the forest. I believe that. But what we're doing is creating tools to help monitor and see what's happening to that forest. So yes, our data says that yes, we're losing life species. Yes, forest is disappearing. But what's the solution? I haven't really come up with how our research provides a solution. So I wanted to change that. So I launched a new network that started in January 2017 called Insects and People of the Southwest Indian Ocean. And there we wanted to do two things, is basically take entomologists off the sidelines of conservation and put them right in the middle of it and say, look, if you say what you're doing is important, let's see an outcome. Stop sitting on the sidelines. What are the outcomes going to be? Stop saying we should fund you because you say it's important. Show us it's important. And do it for an issue that's relevant right now, and that would be conservation. So we, I invited and wrote to all the entomologists working in Madagascar, and we formed a small team of people dedicated to say, let's take our knowledge. And basically, there were kind of three avenues that we decided to focus on. 
One is simply very easy, promoting um, the icons and beauty, like tourism, of the insects of Madagascar. You can go to Madagascar and not see a lemur, but there are beautiful insects everywhere. Let's highlight that. We're writing a book, Icons of the Insect World of Madagascar. That's progressing. The second is, okay, we keep saying we're going to explore diversity to make this tool, but we're not working together. So botanists work together. They create these beautiful books of floras of Madagascar. Entomologists, let's work together. Let's choose five groups, butterflies, dragonflies, ants, and some others, and produce this real unified tool for mining companies to monitor, for assessments, for red listing, and let's do that. But still, that's tools. What's the solution? And this is, to me, probably our most important work. We decided, thanks to just, like it's so obvious now, the fact that insects make the obvious food for Madagascar. People are cutting down forests. Why? Because their children have to eat. And they cut down the forest to grow rice and corn three to five years, then go cut down more forest. Why? Because the soil is not very fertile. Why? Because there's a growing population. It's not the people. It's actually how they're using the land. It's the efficiency. It's the footprint of we are taking up too much footprint. So how do you reduce the footprint? Well, growing and farming insects for food is a great solution. And I just wanted to mention a few reasons why it's going to work in Madagascar. One, you get food, you get more protein than you would in any other way, and you get it in a form that's actually great for malnourished children. It provides nutrients that is even more available than if you ate a sirloin steak. And believe me, though, if you gave a family a sirloin steak, none of the kids are going to eat it. it. All that protein goes to the adults, especially the men, and the children don't get anything. That's why 50% of the children in Madagascar are malnourished, and they're not getting protein. Second, when you rear insects, you get equal weight of fertilizer. So you rear insects, all that poop, insect frass, can be used for fertilizer. So you can extend the lands in terms of farming by putting that fertilizer onto the land. So they don't have to cut down as much forest. And if they're eating the insect protein, they're not eating the bushmeat from the forest. If they're eating insect protein, they're not putting cattle on that forest because they want to keep growing food in that forest rather than just cutting down the forest to pick cattle. So those are the important reasons, but there's a third that's making it even easier in Madagascar is that traditionally in Madagascar, they reared insects where they ate insects. In fact, the early 19th century explorers, 1880 up to about 1920, highlighted how nobody's hungry in Madagascar. They grow rice for six months a year, but they still have food the entire year. Why? Because they eat insects. They prize the silkworm from the high plateau of Madagascar. They prize the locust that's in these swarms. They would actually, in these swarms, get more protein from their locusts than they would from their crops. They would take the locusts, boil them, dry them, create a powder, and they would use that powder throughout the year to add it to their porridge they have in the breakfast, and that's how they would be plentiful with food throughout the year. Now, what's happened? One, modernization of this idea that insects shouldn't be eaten. So yeah, where does that come from? I mean, I you know you've you've got a bag there of, oh, of, yes. of crickets, which I you're going to have some. <laughs> ask me to eat, and I have to say, I'm like I'm I I've had low level anxiety since we started this conversation, thinking about the prospect of eating the insect. Is that something that is an evolutionary or a cultural thing? It's definitely cultural, and and it's kind of the westernization of concept of food. Now attitudes toward food. Now there's lots of reasons you could be absorb that, but. We all eat sushi, right? Mm-hmm. So why can't we eat land shrimp? Yeah. So there, so, or so, sea locusts. You're eating right. sea locusts. Call it sea locusts. But why can't we eat land shrimp? Land shrimp being just a cricket. So, But we didn't always eat sushi in this country, right. for example, right? And, and I recently heard another episode of a podcast called Startup where they talk about, you know, this sort of uh, movement to bring bugs back onto the table. And they talked to uh, the sushi chef in Vancouver, who apparently was one of the first people to really popularize sushi. And he had two things. One is that you have to hide the thing that you want them to eat in food that that people are used to. So that's where sushi rolls came from. They actually put the seaweed on the inside and the rice on the outside so people would eat the seaweed and, and learn to love it unknowingly. Um, and two, you need to have celebrities <laughs> Uh, sh- sh- you know, show that this is a food that is desired by people that we look up to. And so 
you know, I wanted to bring those up as sort of two strategies um, to ask you, you know, because it does seem like you know someone did send me a packet of cricket flour that looked nothing like crickets. I mean, it just looked like flour. And I have, I've made pizza from it. I've made muffins from it. And it's okay. It still makes me feel adventurous. And I certainly, it's not my like, I don't go after it because it tastes better necessarily. And so, you know, but I, I don't know. I, I love chips and you know i haven't tried the cricket chips but apparently people have made them into chips i don't know what do you what do you think about you know this idea that we need to get over this notion that it's not food that's true that is especially for western cultures here in the united states where in our local markets we don't see it so it's going to be really hard for us and here we can be rationalized wow it's low it's a low footprint or it's really good for us and that still won't motivate us to do it so there's got to be other ways. It's got to be like through celebrities and so forth or so forth. But I was kind of worried about that in Madagascar. In fact, so much such that we actually incorporated from the very beginning a kind of an anthropologist that way that's going to look at attitudes and so forth. And, and then I realized, wait a minute. Even the local market in the capital, that's everybody's westernized, are still selling insects. I didn't even real, see this before. My eyes were blind to this. That even uh, the markets right next to where our center is based in Madagascar is selling silkworm pupa. And I didn't even realize that. I walk by it every day and I'm like, wait a minute. So people are buying this still, even in the capital. And then I did some research. And the last living queen of Madagascar, she actually had two chefs that specialized on insects. And she had a, people that went out around the whole country this is just 100 years ago, that actually collected insects for the queen. It was the most prized dish, were the locust. And unfortunately, this locust was eaten everywhere until quite recently. And it's kind of a sad story that I'm just now digging into, realizing that the locust is actually been westernized as the plague. And in fact, if you see the most recent uh, um, Planet Earth BBC, Planet Earth 2, um, they switched from showing a whole swarm of penguins and going, how lovely it is to see all these penguins. They switch to Madagascar and show a swarm of locusts and they call it the plague. And they thank the Food Ag Organization of the United Nations for being there to spray chemicals to kill them all without even realizing that traditionally this was a major food source for the people of the southwest of Madagascar who right now are suffering from a famine with nothing to eat. They would get more protein and food from the locusts. They can't eat it now because they're sprayed. They eat it now, they get sick. So basically the major food source is now corrupted by outside interest um, who, because of big capital money coming in, $45 million a year, that's going to people's pockets in the capital and they're spraying. That's uh, a really sad story. Yeah, and it's if you talk to them locally, um, they'll be like, what happened to our locusts? Why can't we eat them anymore? So what we're doing is we've got, we started a program to go around and document the edible insects, not just document them, but actually figure out their life histories, figure out their host plants. And we actually want to commercialize and upscale the production of those to make them not just seasonal available, but actually if we can commercially make them available, whole insects and insect powder for protein to add to porridges. And we're researching now and testing trials to figure out what insects we can use. So we're working hard, but it, it's interesting science. I want to get back to the science. So I was thinking of this project as just like an applied aspect. We have to do it because it's so logical. You need to do it else so there's going to be no force left. But as it turns out, the science is so exciting. I didn't realize we knew nothing about the insects that people ate. In fact, the silkworm, what is it? It's 25 undescribed species. We don't know anything about them. These other groups, the this, this fulgord, this like lantern bug, we don't even know what species they are. Nobody's looked at this taxonomically. So it's really a problem to even start. What are the life histories? What's the host plant? We want to grow the host plants to, as for reforestation projects. We don't even know what they are yet. So we have to actually do the research on them. We have to figure out what the insects are. And that's all science about biology, life history. And that's really exciting, just as exciting. In fact, so exciting. it's so much more exciting because... The results matter immediately. If we get it wrong, if we get the science wrong, our project fails. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the interesting, in some ways, problem of the diversity of insects that, 
you know, if, if you're talking about what kind of, we sort of limit ourselves to almost three or four types of meat, right? And and this is an interesting thing the startup podcast brought up is that we don't even call them like we don't we don't say we eat cow, we say we eat beef. You know, we don't say we eat pig, we say we eat pork. Uh, because it sort of, you know, takes you one step away from thinking about actually eating the animal. But you know, so uh, chicken, pork and beef being like the three main sources of, of meat that we eat. But there's hundreds of millions of different types of insects. So how do you even decide where to begin in terms of figuring out which are going to be the best uh, species to harvest? Well, we're lucky in Madagascar, people still eat insects locally and seasonally. So whenever that insect is available, they go out and start eating it. So we're surveying that right now and documenting. So we're figuring out, you know, we're, we're looking about their life histories. Is there any potential for upscaling and adding some technology to make sure we can um, produce it in quantity and br somehow break the diapause, the seasonality issues, so we can grow them all year round. What's the host plant? Can we, how hard it is to grow that host plant? It requires a 50-year-old tree. We're not going to choose that insect. So we're looking through and we've identified some already and we're testing them right now. And so how do you know that they're going to not be toxic in some way? Good question. So, um, we're assuming they're not toxic in the beginning because the people are eating them. So that's But they might have a different microbiome than you and I do, potentially. I mean, I'm just speculating that might protect them. Just like, you know, if you, you, know, you can go to certain parts of the world and drink the water and get sick, even though the local population doesn't. Right, right. So we, of course, have to do some trials. And we do have um, nutritionists involved that from Cambridge that are helping us look at the evaluate, evaluating um, the nutritional content at the end, which is very important. When we start mass rearing, we have to also figure out what we're going to feed them. And we have to make sure what we're feeding them also provides high nutrient content at the end and that the actual um, fertilizer is also effective. Um, the toxicology so far hasn't been an issue at all. Only has come up in the fact that if we want to actually feed malnourished people, uh, children usually, under five, we have to make sure that they're not susceptible to uh, some issue that only is present um, in a malnourished person. So that's that's a real important issue that we're looking at. But we haven't had any issues raised at all about toxicology because because these people have eaten them for thousands of years. And that's yeah, I mean, I imagine that's a really big problem. We now talk about, you know, grass-fed beef as making healthier uh, food for us. And and because insects are so small, I imagine that, you know, what you feed them makes a big difference in terms of, I mean, is that true that it would, it could affect their nutritional content? It does. It does affect that. So we have to make sure that our input um, still provides a high quality output. So the in Madagascar, for to make this at a large scale, we have to control cost at what we're feeding them, right? So um, we're, instead of like, the silkworm, which requires putting the eggs on one species of tree out in the forest, well, let's bring it inside. So what do we do about getting the leaves inside? Well, we're growing the trees and nurseries, planting them, then taking the leaves, drying them, creating a paste out of it, bringing it in with an, a kind of a liquid solution, and then feeding the, the, the larva of the silk moth, silkworm. Mm -hmm. And that's how we're having the same kind of source of food, but actually just in a different form. And that's kind of the commercialization that we're exploring right now, how to do that. So if I'm thinking about like what what a insect farm looks like, uh, I'm sort of imagining, you know, big uh, sort of cases of insects, you know, and, and they're eating whatever it is that you're feeding them. And then, you know, how do you get rid of their poop? Is that is that is that like is that like the right way to think about it or yeah imagine these kind of like trays little plastic trays that are on a, a a shelf and you can pull out the little trays and they're growing there and you can um, move them from the next stages by and that's how you clean them you just uh, hmm. shake them and all the other frass will fall through and you move them to a new fresh hmm. container and then you dump the other stuff into the to the fertilizer bin and do we worry at all about what their whether their life is is good, whether they're suffering uh, in the ways that we worry with, you know, cattle, for example, um, for a lot of people don't eat 
beef because of the way that cattle are treated, you know, and some insects are pretty social. So if we take away their ability to form social, is that, is that like, should we be thinking about the ethics of the suffering of insects? Well, that's a good question. We haven't really gone down much that path. We're more concerned with right now, um, are we able to rear these insects? <laughs> um, <laughs> if they're, they're alive, we're thinking they're pretty happy, I guess, so. All right. Well, so I guess it's time for me to eat some honey mustard crickets. Yes, please. <laughs> no, no. So how are we going to do this in Madagascar? We had to partner with a private group, and we're working with this wonderful group called Entomo Farms. They started rearing crickets for the pet trade and are actually one of the largest now producers of protein for human consumption. So they rear things, including crickets, what you're going to eat right now, and they're our partner for Madagascar. So as soon as we basically figure out what insects we want to rear, we're hoping they'll agree to invest to produce, in a large scale, the farming in Madagascar. All right, so here we go. So this is so this is a, a bag of crickets. They actually look like crickets, not like the cricket flower that's been, uh, you know, sort of. These are organic, okay? <laughs> and they were very oh, happy. That's a lot. There's oh a big my pile. God. That's a big cloud. I don't think I need no. all these. No. Start with just okay, one. Okay, I'm gonna start with one. Okay, here we go. Oh my God. Okay. You can do it. Think land shrimp. Hey, that's pretty good. See? Land shrimp is wonderful. Hmm. I'll have another one. That's pretty good. So, this is whole crickets. Now, hmm. I actually find it much easier to market cricket protein, which is just a powder. In fact, me personally, I like to take cricket protein as a powder and add it to yogurt in the morning. Hmm. It's actually super yummy. Super I'll try yummy. that with my cricket powder. Yeah, <laughs> not flour. You don't have cricket oh, flour. Oh, I see. So there's a difference between flour that's, and powder. Yeah, that's for like cooking. That's um, kind of easing you into this idea. Oh, so cricket flour has something in addition to crickets. Has it has flour. Yeah. Oh, I had no idea. I hadn't read the ingredients. <laughs> so cricket protein is just pure ground up cricket with no spices, hmm. nothing. And this is what we're producing in Madagascar. And imagine little packets. Or just the so, for example, the problem in Madagascar is that children um, don't get much protein at all because the protein kind of goes to the adults and that stops mm. when there's limited protein. But it's easy for a mom to go, "Here's my protein powder," and they put scoops in their porridge in the morning, and yeah. they get and and you know, it's equally shared. Well, who knew that the entomologists are going to solve the problem of famine? Famine, and we're going to keep the force there. And that's, yeah. you know, through reforestation and reduced bushmeat consumption and fertilization of the soil they have already in cultivation. That's how we're going to save the force. Remember, the population of Madagascar is going to double in the next 25 years, like a lot of places. Now, doubling the population is not per se the problem. It's how we're going to live. And we have to find a way to live in a sustainable way. Because insects have a low footprint, very small feet insects have, you know, small footprint. That's why insects are the logical choice. I have to say, it, you know, it's, it's pretty tasty. I don't know if I'm quite ready to give up all the other protein sources. But... I want to say how I came to this conclusion. Now, I forgot to mention this because it took a while to figure this out. You know, I work on insects all the time. Why didn't I think of this ages ago, right? Like, was I blind? Well, I wasn't the only one that was blind to this. You see... I had this, I just love ants. And so I was so enthralled with ants one day, I decided I wanted to bring to San Francisco the most amazing ant so everybody could see it. And because of ants' social nature, because of their collective intelligence, I brought the most amazing one, the, the army ants. The army ants have this incredible ability to solve problems because of their amazing ability to work together. They actually are like a leaderless wolverine pack that sweeps through the forest and move their home every night. They move their home by building their nest from their own bodies every night. They link arm to leg, arm to leg, and form this like scarf, this fabric, and insides, the eggs, the queen, everybody. In the morning, poof, like liquid, they just go off and go through the forest, eat everything. Well, I got my handy-dandy shop vac from Home Depot and went down there and sucked up an enormous colony, about half a million workers, and brought them back to San Francisco. We had them on display here in the museum, and for a year. Now, these are high-maintenance pets, and you have to uh, feed them. So I had to feed them 25,000 crickets a day. Wow. So I called up this cricket farm and said, hey, guess what? I need 25,000 crickets a day, every day, for a year. And they said, no problem. I said, what? No problem? 
They said, oh yeah, that's nothing. We ship off a million crickets a day. I'm like, you're making a million crickets a day? Now, why didn't I figure it out then that the pet trade should be switched to the food trade? And it's because that was before 2013 when the Food Ag Organization produces seminal work about using insects, edible insects, to solve the food problem. And this was before even the pet farmer, Darren, from Intimo Farms, figured out how to make the cricket condo and all this other technology to mass-produce crickets. And that's when he switched to start making it for food because he figured out how to upscale the production. And it was actually before I realized that as an entomologist, I had to do something too. So it was that combination of realization is how I figured out that, yes, we have to start as entomologists helping solve the problem. So now we just have to get Oprah to eat them. Yes, you're right. And we have to get people to realize that, you know, we don't have a plan B, you know, right? People say the plan B is Mars. Well, we've all seen the Martian, right? We know what you're going to be eating on, Mar- on Mars, right? You're going to be eating potatoes. And believe me, I know what you're going to be eating for the protein. It's going to be insects. So don't wait for plan B. Start now. Start eating insects because we'll be able to enjoy this planet a lot longer before we have to go to Mars. Well, you heard it here on Inquiring Minds. Thank you for being on the show, Brian Fisher. My pleasure. So, you a cricket eater now? Converted? You know, I, they were tasty, I have to say. They were. They definitely hit my, like, you know, I have a savory tooth. Uh, I love popcorn that's well-seasoned. It's one of my favorite indulgences. And uh, this was pretty good, uh, but it. I definitely had to get over some i don't know i don't i don't necessarily want to call it innate because i know it's cultural but it felt very uh and again <laughs> i don't i don't another term i'm thinking is unnatural I, I don't know it felt awkward for me to put this thing in my mouth there's one insect item i desperately want to try and and does actually freak me out there is a such a thing as a mosquito burger where they basically oh cook up mosquitoes into a burger patty. I've only heard rumors of this and seen a video of it. Um, but I, I thought it was kind of intriguing. Like if you get it medium rare, does it actually bleed? Yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> How do you feel about all of these sort of replacement items when it comes to protein? I mean, we're joking about about insects, and they are a plentiful source of protein. But there's also the impossible burger and the beyond meats that are doing plant-based protein replacement inside burgers and other meat items. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what what the kind of which is better for the environment to create a synthetic meat in the lab, uh does that leave a smaller footprint or to grow a farm of crickets and then turn that into a palatable food? You Cricket know, farm sounds terrible to live by, by the way. That would it keep does. you up. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure we can crisper out the gene that like, you know, makes the set makes them sing. I don't know what's I I assume the the plant based burger has a lower lower carbon footprint. But I mean, you bring up a a great question. How much of a difference does this make? Yeah, I I don't know that it does. Because think about like growing soybeans is not, you know, you need a lot of water. uh, And, you know, you maybe don't need as much water to grow a bunch of crickets. And maybe the like, you know, per pound protein numbers. I I don't know what those numbers are. I think it's a But we're not making that replacement. Like we're making a replacement for the cow. And so what the what matters is the uptake. And the uptake of people substituting the cow for crickets is going to be low at this point. But the substitution for cow for plant-based burger that tastes like a burger may be higher. Maybe. 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 I mean, I still think there's a lot you could do with the ground up crickets, but maybe you're right. Um, I've recently seen a whole list uh, that's been, you know, publicly out there of the changes in behavior that you can make personally that will have the biggest impacts on on climate change or at least on carbon uh, emissions yeah the one chart that i saw was basically like have fewer kids have fewer kids is high on that list <laughs> uh, but i think the the one that actually caught my eye and number one on the list was actually better control of refrigerants because there are much more potent greenhouse gas when they get emitted out into the atmosphere and so i think what's 
actually interesting here is all the discussions about our, our dietary behaviors and, and the cars we drive, those aren't the, the necessarily the top one, two on the list. There's some behind the scenes ones. And I'm wondering if we should put more attention on those to bring them to the fore. Yeah, I mean, I think just like, you know, the point that we make about eating crickets, it's like sushi for a long time was considered totally disgusting by a lot of people in different countries. Like, you know, dumb people, well, dumb people that don't like tasty, yeah. tasty sushi. Well, like my mom, for example, still won't eat it. What? Yeah, like she just she does not understand why anybody would put some a raw wow. fish in, in their mouths, and like so you know I, I th- there's that startup episode that I mentioned on the um uh, on in the interview with Brian that you know s- suggests that there's this chef in Vancouver who came around this by like you know making it look like something else, and I think that there's a real lesson to be learned there not only for how we consume crickets but for a lot of these ways of of reducing our footprint on the environment. Um, you know if it becomes if you know it's it's about how you brand something it's about how you market it out so well i have to say i've had insects from a food truck and it actually made the experience better so i recommend it (laughs) excellent so that's it for another episode i want to thank you for joining us for this installment of inquiring minds and we'd also like to thank our supporters on our patreon campaign especially david noel michael galgool kyle rahala joelle jonathan worsley yushi lin eric clark john kirk jordan millar herring chen sean johnson and nick cadillac you can visit our website at inquiring.show, and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to our new email address, contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Geesh. See you next week. This episode is brought to you by SendPro from Pitney Bowes. SendPro has three times the features of Stamps.com at one-third the price. Visit pb.com slash minds to learn more and to try it for free for 90 days. After that, you'll get SendPro for only 5 bucks a month. That's a third of the cost of Stamps.com. That special $5 rate is good for the lifetime of your SendPro subscription, but only when you sign up at pb.com slash M-I-N-D-S. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and... Producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.